This is Tyler. And this is Danny. And this is Fried Squirms. We're here to get stoned and talk about horror movies. This week being Life Force. I'm super excited. What a movie. Anyway, before we get there, we're going to get to that getting stoned part of this all and get to our green hits. Danny, I'm smoking on a little boy here. <laughs> What's this little boy's name? All right, so... I brought over two different strains for you today. The little guy that I brought over is none other than some Gary Payton. Yeah, I'm talking about the glove. (laughs) All right. So with that being said, Gary Payton is a cookie strain. It, of course, is also known simply as just Gary Payton, but it is a hybrid strain, 50-50 in terms of the split. It is crossed with the classic they and snowman strains. And it's known for its hard-hitting and long-lasting Those are classics? Effects. That's what it says. I don't know about that. I mean, I would argue, but I uh, maybe it's for these new school kids. But <laughs> with that being said, the effects that you'll feel from Mr. Gary Payton are creative, energized, euphoric, focused, and giggly, which, I mean, that's no stranger to smoking. This helps in relieving anxiety, depression, headaches, migraines, and stress. The flavors on this are diesel, which you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Herbal, spicy, and sweet, and the aromas match it as well, including earthy and sour on top of that. Now, I also brought some sour diesel over as well, which is the big boy. It's a strain I've brought over before. I did go to Flower for the Sour, and I went to Mile High for the Gary, so I'm going to shout those out. But with sour diesel, like the one of those I brought over before, if you don't know, it's a sativa. It's mixed with Kim Dog and Super Skunk, of course. Get the diesel flavor, aroma. Mm-hmm. This one also gets you energized. It's more cerebral, a little dreamy, and it is fast acting. The THC on that, let's see, over at Flower for the Sour, it's 29.17%, and Gary Payton's a little over 31.5%, so some pretty big hitters in terms of sativa and hybrids. So I think it's going to be good for today's show and keep us talking. Hell yeah. I made my way over to uh, Greener Pastures. And brought you a joint of mimosa. It's a mix of clementine and purple punch. Now, when I looked this up, we have some fun with these write-ups on, like, Leafly and stuff sometimes, right? Oh, like, without a doubt. For the most part, they're pretty on. And so, like, okay, it says here that it's going to be happy, level-headed, leave you feeling uplifted, motivated enough to take on any mundane task. The part where it gets funny <laughs> is when it says, in large doses... Mimosa may make you feel sleepy and relaxed. And I'm going to contend, in large doses, that's weed. Yeah, I mean, that's across the board. (laughs) Yes, regardless of... In large doses, you're you're getting sleepy. 100%. And you better be fucking relaxed if you're (laughs) just like... Anyway, I read that and I was like, okay, that's the most general weed description I've read in a bit, but... (laughs) So be it. No, I mean, I feel like they have mimosa a bit. I know I've had it before at some point, but it's been a while. So some mimosa. Nice. And let's see. That's it for our green hits. Just a reminder to go check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash fried squirms. At even the lowest level of only a dollar a month, you could be getting this a week early. At the highest level, there's Discord and access to any other things that we might ever do. Plus sticker. Yeah, hell yeah. So go get you at that. Go check it out at least. Uh, we got some shit upcoming so that there will be definite like 
constant content coming pretty soon. So we're looking forward to it. We hope you are. Check it out, patreon.com slash fried squirms. With that, let's get to the guts and bolts of Life Force. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts. Who and what went in the making of this movie? Spoiler free. We'll get to the spoilers later, folks. Start off with our spoiler-free setup of the movie. Ooh, man, this is tough. There's a couple things I want to say, but I think they're too much of spoilers. Like, here's the hook. This should just be the tagline. This is the naked, sexy space vampire movie. I mean, that's exactly what you're getting without spoiling anything. Uh, I don't know what else to say. Like... Fucking astronauts discover a spaceship around Halley's Comet and bring shit to Earth and ta-da, space vampires. <laughs> of course, and it has implications and all that fun stuff. So, of course, from week to week, we like to talk about the cast and crew of the film that we are reviewing. And this week, we're talking about a director that we're not unfamiliar with for several different reasons. Three reasons, this including the fourth one. First one includes the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Yeah. We reviewed that back on Episode 6. You mean the best Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nice. Also, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre back on Episode 150. And on Episode 178, we talked about Invaders from Mars. So Legitimately kind of forgot that we did that. Yeah, I was looking through. I was like, yeah, we did talk about that. Damn, it's it was a fun one, but... Yeah, I looked at his filmography. I'm like, man, that movie sounds familiar. Clicked it open. <laughs> like, oh, oh, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, we did. We certainly did. <laughs> well, you know, we're creeping on in 250. There's some of those we're going to forget. <laughs> All right. So just a few other films of note from Mr. Hooper. Films include Eaten Alive from 1976. He directed The Fun House from 1981. Poltergeist back in 1982. He also directed Body Bags from 93. The Mangler back in 95. He did 2003's The Texas Chains of Massacre. Actually, he didn't direct it, but he was a co-producer on it. He directed, actually, Toolbox Murders from 2004. And then his last director credit was Jin from 2013. Mm. Uh, did Salem's Lot back in 79, television movie, which is a good one. Did uh, an episode of Freddy's Nightmares back in 88. Uh, Masters of Horror did Dance of the Dead and the Damned Thing as well. And shot a music video, Dancing with Myself for Mr. Billy Idol. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, dude, that's, that's pretty awesome, awesome, isn't it? All right, now we've got a couple of writers actually three this is based off the novel the space vampires from colin wilson and then the screenplay was written by dan o'bannon and don jacoby two guys we've actually talked about before yeah so dan o'bannon i catch that name right away yeah as if we need to talk about him on this podcast but we talked about him back on episode 67 when we reviewed alien a few other things of note from mr o'bannon include such things as Dark Star from 74, Star Wars from 77. He did Dead and Buried, although he claims he didn't actually write the screenplay, but he still gets credit for it back mm. in 81. He did the segment Soft Landing and B-17 for Heavy Metal, which we actually talked oh, about shit. last week, yeah, which yeah. is interesting, yeah. Um, oh, fuck, B-17 is a good segment, dude, too. Um, also, The Return of the Living Dead, we talked about him, of course, because of Invaders from Mars, Total Recall, the film Screamers, which coincidentally we brought up last week because I believe the cinematographer mm. 
on my bloody Valentine was also the DP on that, which is kind of neat. And he also helped with Alien vs. Predator from 2004 and Total Recall from 2012, so that's pretty cool. And um, Mr. Jacoby we talked about on, let's see here, three different episodes, this being the fourth one. So we talked about him on episode 33. He did John Carpenter's Vampires, episode 83, Arachnophobia, and episode 178, Invaders from Mars. So, okay. yeah, I was like, that's pretty cool. All right, cinematographer on this is Alan Hume. Mr. Hume got some really cool credits, dude. Uh, let's go back a little bit. 65, he did Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. He did several episodes of the Avengers television series back in 65 through 66, and then also from 67 through 68. He's also helped on such things as The Legend of Hell House from 73, From Beyond the Grave in 74, Gulliver's Travels from 77. He also helped on The Watch in the Woods from 1980. For Your Eyes Only from 1981, okay. which is really dope. Yeah, man. Runaway Train back in 85 as well, along with this film. A Fish Called Wanda. For I those who are familiar, that movie's Wanda. great, man. Um, several television shows I'm, I'm looking at here, which is really cool. Looks like one of the last things he helped on was two episodes of Tales from the Crypt. He did The Kidnapper and The Last Respects in 96. And I'm kind of wondering if that was the London, or the UK-based season, mm. which would make a lot of sense. All right. So moving forward, we have editor John Grover. Got some really cool credits to his name. Those film credits include For Your Eyes Only. He was also the editor on The Labyrinth. The Living Daylights, and License to Kill. All right. Here's another gentleman we've talked about before. Man, you talk about, you could probably start your own podcast talking about this guy, but I'm talking about Henry Mancini. We talked about him on episode 52 back on Creature from the Black Lagoon review, right? right. Holy shit, how long and how much do you want to get involved with him? He was a part of the... I didn't realize this movie had a fucking Mancini this score is going crazy, into it. isn't it? No, I was reading a little bit. He became a pianist and arranger when Glenn Miller reformed, as you know, as mm-hmm. the Glenn Miller Orchestra. And then just a few films because he did work with Universal. I already talked about Creature from the Black Lagoon. He also did The Creature Walks Among Us. It came from Outer Space, Tarantula. He also helped with Touch of Evil, which is an Orson Welles tell, which is really neat. But let's then, throw out the, okay, big names. Moon River. Oh, dude, yeah, come on. Pink Panther theme. The theme from that, yes. Theme from Peter Gunn. It's crazy, man. Yeah, if you just looked at his awards, right here it says he was nominated for 72 Grammys, won 20, nominated for 18 Academy Awards, won four. He also won a Golden Globe and was nominated for two Emmys, right? He won the two Academy Awards, one for Moon River, apparently, of course, and also for best scoring of a dramatic or comedic picture for the movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? So acclaimed guy, if you're really curious and you want to take a look at all of his bodies of work, check out his Wikipedia page. Don't have enough time to really give him enough credit. Charlie's Angels theme? Dude, come on. Thornbird's theme. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Like I said, you could literally have a whole episode dedicated to him. All right. A little bit forward, we have special effects by Apogee Productions. They help with the visual effects in Real Eye Company. They help with contact lenses. Now, we do have a gentleman I want to talk about really briefly, but for a big, bad reason. And I'm talking about John Dykstra. Right? He was a part of Apogee, which is the visual effects. We talked about him, I believe, briefly 
back on episode 178 on Invaders from Mars, but I did want to bring up a few credits because he's got some cool ones. Now, mind you, these are visual effects, but he helped with Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. He also helped with Star Trek, the motion picture, Caddyshack. He also helped on Alice in Wonderland from 85. He also helped on My Stepmother is an Alien, Batman oh, and Robin, Batman Forever, Stuart Little, Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, which are the Sam Raimi's, Hancock, Inglorious Bastards, Django, The Hateful Eight. So, I mean, he was working with Tarantino. That's pretty obvious. Shazam, Ghost in the Shell, Doolittle. Yeah, I mean, some Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, come on, guy. So he's doing some pretty big work still. We have producers. These are some pretty interesting names. We have Yoram Globus. Menahem. Yeah, Menahem. Or, Globus. Menachem. Yeah, Menachem. Menachem. That's just like, yeah. it, it, if you're going to really pronounce it, it's Menachem. <laughs> Golan, but yeah, these Golan guys. Golan Globus. Dude, which, canon. I was about to say, <laughs> if you know those names, you should know exactly what era Holy this was from, from yeah. Canon Film Group. Dude, arguably some of the best B trash that you're going to watch, arguably. And I love them, man. So, well, I think Golan directed The Apple, which okay. is in itself a just terrible fucking sci-fi <laughs> movie. Then they went on to be the heads of Canon Film Group, which under their reign made their fucking nut by producing trash bin scripts. Yeah, as I'm saying, and turning them into motion pictures. American Ninja screen. series. Dude, love those series. Um, trash. Everything. There's a big one. Uh, Death Wish 2 on. Masters of the Universe. Masters of the Universe. <laughs> what the fuck? I went and seen that in the theater. Wasn't uh, Texas Chainsaw 2 was canon, right? Yeah, this was a part of the three-picture deal they made with Hooper, the other one being Invaders, Invaders from Mars. Yeah, and that was off the backbone of Poltergeist. But was it Delta Force? Yes. Chuck Norris? Yeah, of course. They made a shit ton of money off of Delta Force, dude. dude. Uh, 80s like was all about explosions and guns and guerrilla forces and all that shit. <laughs> Breaking 2? Yeah, hell yeah, Electric Boogaloo. I, I'm guilty of watching that. I don't know how many times. Just all sorts of shit. There's yeah. multiple documentaries about those uh, cats. It was totally responsible for a lot of us in the 80s as far as our developmental upbringing and all that shit. Even if you lived through it in your 20s, 30s, and beyond, still a part of it. This is really neat. Okay, so anyhow, the production companies on this were Eastram and London Cannon Films. Uh, distributors were the Cannon Group for the 1985 worldwide theatrical release. It had release date here in the States, 1985, June 21st, that is. Budget was $25 million against a gross of 11.6. Wow. All right, the tagline I have on this is actually from... The Blu-ray I have, and I believe it's on the poster too, but it says, in the blink of an eye, the terror begins. I'm going to add one other credit to this, yeah, just maybe. depending on the cut you watch. This was released in two different versions. Mm -hmm. The theatrical cut, which oh, I've heard a lot of differing information on just how it was released when it came to DVD. It seems like initially... Only the quote-unquote director's cut was available in the United States, and the theatrical cut was only released in Germany, and then they released the theatrical cut worldwide very mm. quickly after. Gotcha. And sometimes the director's cut, because I don't think it's technically a director's cut. It's more mostly known as the international cut. 
Right. And that actually, that's the version I watched. And that's the version I watched okay. as well. It's 15 minutes longer. But one of, the, one of the changes they make with removing 15 minutes is they actually change a portion of the score. So a portion of oh, the score, that's, that's right. if you yeah. watch the American version, is actually by Michael Kamen, yep. who at one point was yeah he, he at one point was the conductor for the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. I believe he did music on the first X Men movie, and during his time with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, he was the one that did the S and M album with Metallica. That's pretty dope. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. And I think even before that, he was consulted by them on the song Nothing Else Matters. Like, he's got a credit on the Block album. Okay. Yeah. Good on him, man. That's awesome. All right. Moving into our cast, we have quite the extensive cast, but I've kind of narrowed it down to some key figures in the film for time's sake. So I'm going to lead off with Steve Railsback. It's a gentleman we've talked about before, but he plays the role of Colonel Tom Carlson. We talked about him twice. We talked about him back on episode 130. When we reviewed The Devil's Rejects. I don't know how much we talked about him. And we also, pretty sure we brought him up. It's been a while, but he was a part of Trick or Treats. Mm -hmm. When we reviewed that back on episode 136. All right, a few other films of note from Mr. Railsback. Where do you want to start? Let's see here. He's probably best known for his portrayal of Charles Manson in the 76 television miniseries Helter Skelter. Coincidentally enough, he also played Ed Gein in The Light of the Moon back in 2000. Oh, shit. Yeah, dude. He was also in The Stuntman with Peter O'Toole. He was in two episodes of The X-Files as Dwayne Barry. And he was also Joseph Welch in the pilot episode of Supernatural, which is really neat. Yeah, man. Barbed Wire, 1996, Barbed Wire. <laughs> he was in that. He was in The Hitcher Part 2, I've Been Waiting. He was in Plaguers back in 2008. And more recently, he was in Gone Are the Days from 2018. All right, cool. So we have Peter Firth. He plays the role of Colonel Colin Kane, which I did read, if I'm not mistaken, people can fact check me on this because I don't want to be wrong, but I believe this role was initially offered to none other than Sir Michael Caine. I found a giant list of people who were oh, considered for some of the different roles. I don't know how realistic some of them are. Yeah. I did isolation a portion of the list, though, of people who were in this movie that were considered for different roles that we'll get into later. I believe also read that Billy Idol was offered a role, but because of his touring dates, he couldn't. Mm. I don't know how true any of this is. This is we're talking about 85 here. Right. And probably maybe 84, considering. But anyhow, anyhow, Peter Firth, he's got some really cool credits, actually. He goes into my childhood very weirdly because he did why. a voice in The Rescuers Down Under. That's pretty awesome. He was the kangaroo. Nice. Now, a few films of note from Peter is he was in the film Equus. He was also in Sword of the Valiant. He, some people might recognize him in The Hunt for the Red October. Yeah. He was also in Amistad, Mighty Joe Young. You might have seen him in Pearl Harbor, The Greatest Game Ever Played. Mighty Joe Bong? Yeah, I wish. (laughs) Now, you're talking about some PC stuff here. He was a part of a television series. I believe he was in every single episode back in 2002 all the way through 2011. Now, here in the States, it's called MI5, but over in the UK, it's called Spooks. Mm. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> All right, we have Frank Finlay plays the role of Dr. Hans Falada. And a few things of note from 
Mr. Finlay. Some falata people, sounds dirty, doesn't it? Yeah, a whole lot of falata. <laughs> falata. Yeah. Falata vagina. Too close. <laughs> too close. Now, check this out. This is really cool. He was Iago in Laurence Olivier's 1965 Othello, mm. right? He was also in The Key, which is a Tinto Brass film. His first leading role, I should say, came in the 1971 film Casanova. And he also made appearances on The Morecambe and Y Show. And he also made an appearance in the drama Bouquet of Barbed Wire. And those are just a few of several films. I'm just looking through here. Um, he was in the episode The Witch Smeller, Persevant, and uh, or Persuavant, and The Black Adder. That's pretty interesting. Oh, shit. That's amazing. He's which smaller pursuit? Persuivant? Yeah, Persuivant. Yeah, that's <laughs> fucking hilarious. Uh, although, to be honest, that is from the first season. The first season is kind of rough. Yeah. I fucking love Blackadder. That first season's rough, bro. Oh, this is actually pretty cool. I should have known this. He played Porthos in The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers back in 73 and 74. He was Van Helsing in Count Dracula back in 77, TV movie. Mm. Pretty neat. Just looking through. He was in The Pianist. Wow. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, he's got some pretty cool credits. All right, now we've got an interesting gentleman here. I want to bring him up really quick. Patrick Stewart plays Dr. Armstrong. <laughs> really? As if we really need to introduce him, right? Fucking peace, too. Yeah, Jean-Luc Picard, Professor Charles Xavier, which I want to bring that up in the next section. Gurney Halleck. Yeah. Which is really cool. I've never watched Blunt Talk. I've been kind of curious about that. I know it's a Star Wars television series. Mm. I don't know, man. He's been in a ton of stuff. I mean, in the 80s, it's kind of interesting. Dune, of course. But in the yeah. 80s, he did some interesting bodies of work is what I'm kind of getting at, too. But if you really want to look at his filmography, too, it's like, how long do we have? How long do you want to be it's here? Fucking, it's Patrick Stewart, bro. Yeah, he should be in everybody's just sphere of entertainment if you're into any of this stuff. All right, I've got Matilda May. She is the space girl in this film. A few films of note from her. She was in Isabel Eberhardt. She was also in The Cry of the Owl, and she was in the film The Jackal. I've got basically three other people, and then I'll name a few other people without going extensively into their catalog. I've got Michael Gothard. He plays the role of Dr. Leonard Bukowski. All right, now a few films of note from Mr. Gothard, which is funny. There was, I think there's two guys in this that were very heavy German accented mm. and they had to really hide it, <laughs> you know, cause his, his film is based in London. All right. So a few films of note from him. He was in the last Valley from 1971. He was in a really interesting film. Ken Russell film, the devils from 1971. He was also in the three musketeers and the four musketeers as John Felton. He was also in King Arthur, the young warlord. He was also in warlords of Atlantis and he was also in the 1992 film Frankenstein, which is actually really cool. All right, I have Aubrey Morris. He is Sir Percy Heseltine in the film. We actually, I think we brought him up. I don't think we talked about him too much, but he was in The Wicker Man. Oh, shit. Back okay. on episode 82. Yeah, which is really interesting. A few things of uh, note outside of that. Uh, some people might know him because he was Pierre Deltoid in A Clockwork Orange back in 71. What the fuck? He was in Woody Allen's Love and Death in 75, Ken Russell's Listomania in 75 as well, and Gene Wilder's The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother in 77, 
right? And he also appeared, this is wild, in Bordello of Blood in 96. Last but not PR least. PR Deltoid. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to, to remember who. I don't know. I haven't watched it in so long. Oh, no. PR Deltoid is his fucking probation officer. Uh, oh, that's right. That's funny. Dang. Yeah, so it's been a while since I've watched it. He's the guy groping all up on Alex. What's he doing? <laughs> Ooh, yikes. All right, and like I said, not, last but not least in terms of like extensive credits I have, Nicholas Ball, he plays Roger uh, Deerbridge, which is interesting. He's just like one of the crew on the spacecraft. He makes a brief mention of like being tired when they're examining mm, Space okay, Girl. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, So a few things of note from him. Some people probably know him because he portrays the vicious gang lord Terry Bates in EastEnders. That ran from 2007 through 9 when he played that role. He was also Gary Ryan in The Footballer's Wives, and they also did a spinoff of that. It was called Extra Time. So he was in Red Dwarf Season 4 oh, shit. as a simulant. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of cool. neat, yeah. He was in the Young Ones one episode. Young Ones. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Yeah, so that mostly just UK based things, which is really cool. So, one other person I did want to mention, which is kind of interesting, just as a little side nugget, but Chris Jagger plays the first vampire. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he is the younger brother of Mick Jagger. Oh, no shit. Yeah. I thought the one looked kind of like Fade. So, there you go. <laughs> Right, and there's several other people in this film. There is, let's see here, um, just to give you some names without going to their catalog, we have John Hallam who plays Lampson. He's like one of the guys that helps with a serum, like a, an injection later on in the film. Okay. All right, there's Jerome Willis who plays a pathologist. We'll talk about him a little bit later on in the film. You have John Forbes Robertson who plays the minister. And there's a slew of other people. Um, Julian Firth actually makes an appearance as the second boy in Park, whatever that refers to. But, I mean, there's a couple firsts in this. Anywho, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. You gave us a brief setup. Should give you some warnings. Warnings. I did say this was the sexy naked vampire film, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Matilda May is almost never clothed in this movie. Right. And... Probably for our sakes and maybe a lot of others, no dongs. Although there are naked dudes in this film, mm -hmm. but no dongs. I mean, there's a little bit of language, right? Yeah, some here and there, not much. A uh, little bit of blood and gore. Yeah, there's some pretty decent special effects in terms of that, like the practical effects. Some of them are decent, but obviously stylized. Right, right, right. And you can tell there's a lot of things that are mechanized, more but mechanical. It looks good. No, I'm not. So yeah, I'm not I guess, yeah, look out for that because it might have an effect on you. Perhaps. I mean, really, the thing about this movie is that Matilda May is going to be right. naked like all the time. The whole, so. Every time you see her on film. You know, some people have a problem with that. I'm not one of them. Yeah, neither am I. I think with that, let's get in to find out how Life Force made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right, so space poops. I mean, life force. This was your first time, right? This was my first time. Yeah, I'd never seen it, even though I had bought a copy of it not too long ago. But besides that point, I had never seen it before. I guess I do know my history with this movie because it's something that I had to stop myself from going back and reliving because I wanted to try to bring a little bit of my own thoughts to the table. I only know about this movie because they covered it on uh, How Did This Get Made. Nice, hell yeah. 
Like, I mean, eventually I would have heard about it anyway because of how many times we've mm-hmm. talked about Toby Hooper and, you know, just, like, looking him up and shit. But, it was inevitable, yeah. But otherwise, I wasn't clued in until they did an episode on it, I think at this point, probably, like, three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. I probably haven't listened to that episode in a, at least two years. Well, gives me an excuse to probably listen to it tomorrow. <laughs> and I really wanted to go back and, like, hear what they thought after I watched it the I first know, time. Right? But then I didn't... Like, I'm going to probably, after we record this, and just be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, shit. (laughs) That's fine. I did remember just enough to realize something. They watched the American cut. Oh. Wow. So they missed 15 minutes of whatever. Because one of the only things I do remember is them bitching about the speed of the text in the beginning. Because the American cut opens with fucking text on the screen explaining that the ship's been sent up and shit. Gotcha. Damn. That's interesting. See, that's kind of, once again, like last week, even though we both knew about My Bloody Valentine, we had seen it after they put those cuts back in. Right. So had we had seen the one without the cuts, we probably would have a differing opinion. So... It might have impacted how good my notes ended up getting taken, but while I did my second watch this time through, I actually brought up a website and scrolled through the list of differences between the two Mm. versions while I was watching. Nice. Okay. Because I was curious. There's 15 fucking minutes worth of differences. Guess what? Expo? Mostly Expo. Honestly, so here's the thing. Toby Hooper wanted to make this movie... Because the name of the book is Vampires in Space. Yeah, exactly. Or Space Vampires. Or Space Vampires. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. same difference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. And so he wanted it to be more of a comedy, and he was going to kind of, like, if he had his complete way, it was going to be a lot more about the kookiness of this idea of space vampires than anything even close to resembling the novel that it's based off of. I don't know how exactly how popular the novel got. Like, I know that it ended up getting translated into a few languages that usually indicate something, yeah. but... Moderate success. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plus, I mean, I guess it was optioned for a movie. I mean, that's saying something, regardless. Now, apparently the novel's a lot more Lovecraftian. Yeah, I, I saw some of that. It's kind of neat. I saw some... Spe- I, I might have to read it and decide for myself, because they were saying it was extremely Lovecraftian and I'm like I think I would have like somebody would be ringing it up more often if if it was if that, that were close case. yeah maybe not maybe it's that hidden gem maybe we're perhaps anyway anyway uh what was I saying so the studio wanted it to be serious and honestly we know that Toby Hooper has a problem making things funny yes he thought Very Texas true. Chainsaw was funny the movie's Fucking serious as shit. I know, right? It's part of its charm. How wrong. And part and part of how fucking frightening it is. It's because it's serious as shit with these fucking demented hillbillies. Wow. Right? So I think he tried to make it funny. And then the studio cut a shit ton. Part of what they cut was almost every reference to vampire in the fucking movie. That's weird. Except for like the two or three times. That is 100% like plot important. Yeah, I'm wondering because, like, all those other things, like that quote towards the beginning where he's like, Well, we're all vampires in a sort because it's all about like that's not in 
the theatrical okay. cut. Okay, so they were trying to just stick straight to Life Force, like, without any vampire implications. They didn't want it to be space vampires. Right. They wanted it to be just like sci-fi, sci- yeah, horror. Exactly. Gotcha. These Written by Dan O'Bannon. Right, right, right. These humanoids coming down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rain on Life Force. Okay, without what we just mentioned. Which is funny, because it sounds like we're talking about, like, a serious executive board but we're talking about canon was coming dude down i know like we just brought up the list of films or just a short list of like films. i really don't know why they didn't let that version just roll but yeah I once again i do think they kind of let that version roll because toby <laughs> hooper kind of sucks at making comedy yeah he just has a very very dark sense of humor if you want to put it in those terms dude i mean think about it like texas chainsaw 2 is his attempt at making an obvious comedy and it's a black comedy yes yeah, because it's still terrifying. <laughs> it's just absurd. Of course it is. You know, and like I said, having all those years, you know, to look back on it now, it does make it appear more so like, oh, this is just absurd more than anything. But that's kind of this movie, right? Like, it's played yeah. straight as shit, but, but still absurd. Like, of course. So here's the other difference is they just, like, the American version is the so bad it's good version from what I can tell. Like, from when I was... Well... The differences that I was reading. The version we watched is, like, the actual kind of, like, legitimate somebody-made-a-movie version. Because a lot of the other things they cut were just, like, camera panovers to start scenes and stuff. And, like, holding on actors for an extra second to, like, convey the emotion and stuff. I can can understand that. They're just... It's like, ah, this is a little unnecessary, perhaps. Who knows? But, yeah, I mean... I I do think it, like... I think it made what we watched... The better version. Typically, typically, not always, but typically. There seem to be actual, like, feeling and pacing behind it. That's kind of what I've understood, too, is the version that we watched, the international cut, has a better pacing flow to it, if you will. That one, when I was reading those cuts, dude, it just was weird. And, like, yeah. why Why would you just, and it sounds like some of them are just, like, hard cuts between some of these scenes. Interesting. And, I'm going to have to go back at some point, you know, not anytime soon, but I do have, because I got the Arrow version, I've mm. got both cu- cuts. So, kind of curious now. Also, the theatrical cut, they applied a different or another color filter on top of. It's a mm. little bit brighter and a little bit more yellow. Just a touch, but it's enough that some of the, like, I saw some screenshots and some side-by-sides and was like, ooh, (laughs) oh no. Like, all of the actual, like, life force stuff that we see towards the end. You know how, like, the life force looked and, like, the shade of blue that was sort of the middle? Think if that was the outside edge. Okay. And everything just looked like really bad, too bright CG. Oh, I see you're saying, yeah, ooh, oof, duh. And it's to the point where... I see what you're saying, yeah. That different color filter on it actually changes the way some of the scenes really look in a big way because one of the screenshots I did see a side-by-side of is when the vampire at the end, when he forms out of the energy. Yeah, yeah. The dude vampire at the end. I think you're talking about, yeah, space bad. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And he, like, turns, and I think he says, oh, you know, come at me or whatever. (laughs) Or this will be a lot less terrifying if you just come at me or whatever. Do you remember what that scene looks like in your head, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So 
that different color gradient accentuated the red lighting coming from across the street more and it almost looks washed out in red instead of it all being huh. blue with like that red flashing into it yeah it makes you wonder too especially when it comes to like the uk and american cuts mm -hmm. it's like why does it appear that the uk gets the better version almost nine times out of ten and we get the kind of watered down bullshit version like i said supposedly from what i saw at least when it was released on video in the U.S., the international cut was released first? Okay. Question mark? Yeah, I don't know about all... Yeah, the, like the timing, I don't know. There was some sort of differing info I was getting from different places, so. but I saw somebody claiming that the only place that the theatrical cut actually dropped on DVD was Germany to start. Sounds about right. They do a pretty good job, I would say, Germany. Especially with their Blu-rays, recently media books and stuff. Mm. I don't know. It sounds like a fucking mess, but... It doesn't surprise me, though. I would recommend to you, at least. I guess anyone else like interested in it. I think... Uh, the website, it's like a German website, and it's called... It's something having to do with, like, filmcensorship.com. If you just type in Life Force version differences well, yeah yeah it's one of the first things that pops up and it's a really good rundown side by side but it's like nice. 120 wow. different cuts fuck what Jesus. like that 15 minutes is like 120 wow. cuts spread That's over the course a lot of, the movie. of film if you're looking at it like that oh but I, I want to say like 10 minutes of those cuts take place in the first 40 minutes of the movie well if what you were saying is they're trying to do away with the whole vampiric aspect of this film. It's like, yeah, you're going to have to make quite a fucking few because this is what this film is. <laughs> what the fuck? Okay, so apparently the book's Lovecraftian, right? I didn't get much of that in this, no. other than a couple of overt references. I mean, yeah, like the, yeah, a the little ship, bit. Yeah, and it's visited the ship is before and all that other stuff. I mean, the ship, you can tell that O'Bannon worked on this because it might as well have been a geezer ship out of fucking Alien. You know what I... I don't know how true this is, but I heard that it was modeled after an asparagus. Kind of looks like it. It kind of right? does look like it. I'm like, God damn, how silly is that? <laughs> what jumped out to me was that this is fucking gender flip Dracula. Yeah, it really is. It 100% is. Like, as long as you know the Bram Stoker Dracula story, any version of it. Then in you're going to be familiar with this. In a weird way, this is one of the better adaptations of Dracula I've seen in the way that it mixes around the characters and keeps things recognizable but right. fresh. No, I, I did like that. I did like that about this film, even though it's like, yeah, once you realize what it is, like, oh, yeah, it's a pretty simple follow. But it is a nice take on it. I will say that. And it is very true to the story, mm -hmm. without a doubt. So you have to give some credit there. How do we want to get into this? We've already jumped around some different parts of the movie. We can, I guess we can just kind of delve into it. And we can jump yeah, around. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They find the ship. <laughs> they find oh, the ship on. in the coma of Haley's Let car, me ask right? you this. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's okay. We're talking about the space crew, right? It's mm -hmm. Steve Rawls back. It looks like he's in the lead. He's a part of the U.S. and British coalition. But you're right. They're just out there looking around in Haley's Comet, and they come upon this huge, and I'm talking about ridiculous dimensions, spacecraft, 150 miles long and two miles tall. Like, no. What the, what the and it's kind of circular, so you kind of just figure two miles probably across as well. But that is like, what are you talking about? 
that's ridiculous. I mean, I get that's cool. No, Oban- I mean it's it's awesome. I mean, like for film's sake, <laughs> O'Bannon, I believe, also worked on Yodorowsky's Dune. Okay, okay. So when you're talking like, okay, Guild Freightliners, I get it. I get it. It's like they're making it the same really thing. Really grand. Mm-hmm. Trying to give you maybe scope, you know, like perspective. It's like I get it, but man, in, in terms of the film, it's like, ooh, that's no. <laughs> That doesn't look anything like 150 miles. I think it's a cool idea. It's one of those ones that it's, it doesn't work because it's too hard for people to imagine properly. Right. And and like I said, the the framing of the ship doesn't help with that perspective because it's like, you you can't see a 150 mile long ship. It's kind of like that thing where people have a hard time realizing how big of a difference it is between a million and a billion. Yeah. It's like, once you get to certain sizes, it just becomes ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's hard to fathom. And, and sometimes that's used to good effect, like the Death Star. 100%. That's not a moon. Holy shit. That's when you fucking brown trousers time, right? Yeah, that's when, yeah, that shit's already beyond hit the fan. This, you're just like, some motherfucker would have saw that in their backyard telescope, right? Dude, yeah, that fucking enormous, it's going to stand out. And you just can't, it was just hard to, Make me care. Right. Kind of the same thing. But I was like, all right, if I put aside that bias, okay, let's buy into the the story. The thing I did like about it, though, was it was so specific that later on in the movie when they're like, yeah, this thing's moving away from the comet. It seems to be 150 miles long by two miles wide. I was like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. We established that. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. So beyond that, I do like how... They enter the ship and they're exploring. The first thing they come across, which is one of my first notes, is that it appears that they found some space, like human-sized space bats. Animated. Dude, that scene looked cool. And suspension, yeah. It was really dope. And the first note I have is, there is no fucking way I'm touching any of that shit. <laughs> it's almost like as soon as I see that, I'm like, I'm going back. After you've already been traveling Fuck through that. fucking the sphincter of the fucking ship... Yeah, basically. I'm lucky they didn't find fucking lemmy. It look like <laughs> like here comes a hemi. <laughs> the way the bats were just sort of frozen and hanging out though, it just was looked really cool. Yeah, it was awesome. But once again, there is no way I'm touching any of that shit. Yeah, no, fuck that. Mm-mm. Nuh-uh, that's too scary. <laughs> here. And then you go in and you find the vampires. Exactly. And of course, we've already alluded to, and we've mentioned it that they are. Naked, the three. One female, two guys. And so what happens? They bring them back on board their spacecraft. Look, fucking rare exports gave me enough dong for a fucking lifetime. But with how naked Matilda May is in this movie, they should have probably included at least one dong shot from those guys just to even it up a little bit. Even Little Bush. (laughs) It would have been, you know, it would have sufficed. Because every time it's that fucking something just is right there. Yeah. All right. Here's, I think, an interesting thing that it, that they did in this opening sequence, which m- makes perfect sense now, is a part of the crew is still on board, mm-hmm. and they're communicating back and forth with the others who are out exploring. And at a certain point, the ship opens up, and they talk about it looking like an umbrella, et cetera, et cetera. Guess what? 15 minutes cut out, most of that dialogue's gone. Wow. 
that's important though in the scope of this film and towards the end of the film as well. Including, I think, even them mentioning the ship opening up. Dude, It yeah. just suddenly looks... Di- in the 15-minute cutout, it suddenly just looks different when they get out there. Wow, what the fuck? I'm definitely <laughs> have to go back and check this out just for that alone. This is where I think it's interesting because unbeknownst to the crew at the time, that ship was draining their energy as soon as they got in that sphere of it. Mm-hmm. It was already on. It was game on. And they didn't know that. But, you know, we learned that through some expo later on, specifically with Steve Railsback's character. So there's like 30 days that passed after the discovery of those bodies, and then it appears one by one, crew members start to die. I guess the space agency and whatnot back home and here on Earth, they're concerned because there's been no communication with the Churchills, the name of, of that spacecraft. And so they send the Columbus up there. I really wish they would have named it the Demeter. That would have been awesome. Was it Columbus, Columbia, something like that? The Columbia. Okay. and Because uh, I was like, oh, this is getting close to that time period. Sorry, I just keep thinking about all the things I read that they cut. That, like, 10-second scene where they mention they're sending up the Columbia, they cut that and <laughs> replace it with, like, four seconds of, like, cutting to a computer screen the where fuck? they're like... <laughs> I'm hoping for the sake of everybody who's listening that uh, you are you watch the same version that we watch because you're like, what the fuck are you talking about right now? Dude, yeah, right. It's only like a 10 second conversation, right? Where yeah. they're like, what's going on? We can't see this. Is it time for the Columbia? Right. Yeah, it's and time they for send the Columbia. It up and then they're, that, that's that. They cut that, Damn. cut to the computer screens, <laughs> and then they're just like, they've decided to send the ship Columbia to attempt to contact the shuttle. That's hilarious, dude. And so it's four seconds instead of ten seconds. (laughs) Like, what are you guys doing? That doesn't make a big difference. I mean, it does, I guess, in the overall 15-minute cut, yeah. It's a bunch of little things that add up like that. I started just shaking my head when I was reading through it, and I'm like, now I get why they talked about this on how did this get made, because these differences make it so bad that it's a good version. This just makes it a... It's okay. Look, we, we haven't given it our overall opinion yet, but it's fine. There's nothing bad about it. No, 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 I mean, no, I it's not great. No, it's definitely not great. But once again, it's not <laughs> awful either. Not in my opinion. All right. What do they find when they do go in contact with the church? Well, I've already mentioned it. They find the bodies. But this time around, they find the bodies charged. So there has been a fire inside the, the spacecraft. But they do find those three aliens, if you will, humanoids, still intact in their cases. And their cases, I have to do specify, because they make mention of it once they do bring them back to Earth, is that it's not a metal. It's possibly not even an organic material. It's like a force field, which appears like a casing. I think that explanation gets cut. What? Every time I'm like... <laughs> I feel like I'm being censored here. <laughs> what did I, what I say? <laughs> so, yeah. So, all right. So, for those who follow along our path. <laughs> all right. I'm just going to keep trying to blow your mind with I, these I little know, tidbits. I know. I'm liking it because I'm like, whoa, this is blowing my mind right now. So, once, like, so once they bring them back down, they're going to perform an autopsy because there's a group of gentlemen, doctors, that are down there. They include Dr. Falata, who is more concerned not only with you know, like biochemistry and stuff like that, but he really is, he likes the topic of death. And he's not quite certain that they are dead, according to Earth's terms, or maybe even space terms in this equation, alien terms. So he's a little reluctant, but they go ahead with the procedure. Uh, once they decide to autopsy the oh, wait. female. That scene, I want to... Also? 
It's in there. Okay. But they make a cut almost purely for time that gets rid of some of the like where the doctor really stands on this. Because when they ask him if they're dead, I can't remember what his answer is, but you know how like he has like a second and a half beat. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, and then he gives his response, right? Right, exactly. They cut that second and a half. They just have him give his response. Damn, okay. Okay, here we go. (laughs) All right. They come to the conclusion that they're going to perform an autopsy on the female of the three. And the guy that goes down there, you know, he's getting ready. As soon as he goes to take off, you know, whatever's uh, clothing her, not even clothing, but, you know, concealing her nakedness, Mm -hmm. her eyes pop open. Huh, surprise. And she approaches him, and she starts to, like, kiss him and shit. And you're like, ooh, this is sexy. And it's like, not really, because she's going to drain his life force. That's what happens. Now, at the same time, Dr. Bukowski, because they have it on a monitor, I'm like, damn, someone's in there doing, like, the secret spanking upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Uh, He sees what's going on, and he runs downstairs, and he's overcome by her presence, which he mentions later on, and she starts to do the same thing to him. And this is where Dr. Falada's watching. Only only in certain versions does he only in certain versions does he actually explain how he was overcome in that room. Wow. Wow. He's like, he was just perving out, dude. <laughs> I gotta get me a piece too, shit. All right, so Dr. Falada in the international cut is watching from his monitors, because he also has got to get on in the nakedness of this. And you know, he brings his guys down there and they discover the guy who was given the autopsy initially, like he's completely drained. His body's just shriveled up. But Dr. Bukowski's still there. He had seen her. He makes mention of what happened, et cetera. And so they put a, like an APB out to intercept her from leaving. So the drained, I realized a lot of people, I guess, don't use this like fucking vampire terminology when it comes to this movie. A lot of them are just like, yeah, the fucking like vampire zombies. And I'm like, fucking ghouls. Yeah. That's what it is. They're ghouls. And they got to feed or else they die. Yeah, and that's what these are. They're ghouls, man. So. Because they're not changing them into full-on zombies. No, this is interesting. I, I like the where this kind of goes because it does, it deviates from what we're familiar with in terms of uh, vampires. Even what we talked about with uh, Gangshi and things like that, mm-hmm. too. It's like it, it's another entry point, if you will, um, which is neat. Like I said, with the introduction of the ghouls, they have to feed, otherwise they die. You know, they start to learn that a little bit as as time goes by, because what happens is she starts to overtake the guards, which is funny because it starts with like this old guy doing whatever little puzzle. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you're not going to believe this. And the other guys are like, yeah, right. There's a naked lady. You go like, am I? We can't. OK, yeah, right. And then there she is. And then the one guy's like, yeah, come to daddy. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, she let him have it. And uh, she pretty much just walks out the building. Yeah. You know, unscathed. Well. I won't say unscathed because she had to wear the actress herself, Matilda, had to wear like rubber soles on her feet to avoid oh, getting okay. cut up when she walked out. But this sets some things in motion, like I said, um, mainly because the guy that was drained, right, the initial guy, they're going to perform an autopsy on him. They're like, what the fuck happened to him? Right. He looks dead but dope kind of like yeah. i'm not dude that if the effects on the ghouls are so fucking cool looking i want to put a little asterisk mark next to that because it, it reminds me until they move well that because it's pretty obvious but it reminds me of another film even though i brought up well i haven't brought this one up yet i want to bring it up 
two films here in a second. Like I said, what this brings in motion is they, they have a group of people watch the autopsy this time. It's not just one guy going in and doing his thing. So once the guy starts to perform the autopsy, his fucking body starts to get drained, which is dope because that's what's on the cover of my Arrow version. I'm like, mm. hell yeah. So they're witnessing this other pathologist have his body drained of his life force. And But what it does is it pretty much brings that guy back to life, if you will. Even though he wasn't dead, it brings him back to what we viewed him before he shriveled up. Mm-hmm. you know. And it starts to freak him out. They put him under and they put him in like this holding cell. And then they put that body in a holding cell. <laughs> and then while... She's out. They find another body out in the field, and they decide right. to bring that body back because now time's elapsed, and they're starting to recognize a pattern. And that pattern is, is like in two-hour intervals, they have to eat. Otherwise, this happens, and they're showing the guy who just drained the life out of the pathologist. He shrivels up after those two hours, and Dr. Falata is like, well, this is what happens if they don't feed. And he pokes at him, and that guy shrivels the dust. I'm like, whoa. Right. I know that's probably a lot of stuff in between them with the cuts. <laughs> right. Well, I just wanted to mention I gave the, you a lot. the, I think cut wise with the autopsy on the chick from the park, mm-hmm. they don't show any of the overhead shots. Oh, okay. Just the side shots. Interesting. So still nudity. I was going to say maybe with the, in the park now, maybe one of those two guys were Julian Firth. Now that I think about mm. it, probably was. Anyhow, that's just me and her now. But the weird one, one of the ones that sticks out in my head is when they go back to the pathologist that's now caged up. Yeah, yeah. Or, no, the original guy that drained the pathologist that's now caged up that they're waiting. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm they're talking They're observing, about. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. They just hard cut to him in the cage. Uh. Instead of in the theatrical cut, you start on the darkness of the corner, you pan across the bars, and then it focuses on the guy on the cot. That's the types of cuts that I'm talking about. Wow. Like, okay, the actual, like... There's like building movie artistic yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's leading into something. It's giving you more than just the shot itself. Yeah. So like that's what we watched was like the sweeping cool, yeah. this awesome okay. sweeping movement. The theatrical cut. Just a shot. Just cuts to God him laying there. <laughs> we get we get this some bullshit. Anyhow, I don't want to get into all that. That's the that's why it's like a hundred over a hundred cuts. Yeah. This is I'm going to try to speed this up because really, once you get past this little bit, I mean, this stuff is important because it's, it's springboard stuff, you know, mm-hmm. moving forward after this. But once they start to figure this out, like there's these time intervals, two hours, boom, that guy's dead. This guy's about to die because it's almost in, in accordance to when he got drained. Boom, he dies. Well, at some point in there, we see the brides get out. Yeah. I'm just going to refer to them as the brides. I mean, basically, <laughs> you know, that's what they are, which... I should have known this twice now watching this fucking film. That's probably the loudest parts of the film is this gun battles in there. Mm-hmm. They're just shooting those fucking two brides. And you're like, God damn. Someone went a little overboard in the 80s with this sound design. <laughs> Dude, well, that's fucking... So they just... Where'd the explosion come from? Fuck if I know. It was is 80s. It just that's like what I'm getting psychic at. explosion? Think about what we talked about in those films. Lethal Force. American Ninja. <laughs> You gotta have some explosions. Because those guards go to look in on, or the guards or yeah. the doctors oh, actually, or somebody go to look in on. One of those guys do do throw he he like tosses a grenade. Oh. So yeah, I was like, yeah, that, that did happen. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I just I was stoned and not paying attention. Yeah, no, I was too, but now I'm thinking about it, I was like, yeah, he did actually did toss a grenade oh, in there. Okay. okay, so yeah, that makes sense. 
<laughs> that's just stone memories. But regardless, they had to put that in there, right? For no other reason than just you need some explosions back then, gunplay, loud loudness. Anyway, those guys get out, right? So not all three are out. They bring that corpse, the female corpse from the field back to that little agency, whatever. And they're performing the autopsy on it. Now, here's where I was going to say with those particular corpses, those, mm-hmm. those mechanical dolls or whatever, they were used or repurposed apparently in the mummy, 1999, Brendan Fraser mummy. Oh, no shit. Right. I would, I could have put money almost. Now I still might be right. Cause I haven't researched it enough, but it's like, well, coincidentally enough, Dan O'Bannon worked or he wrote the script for Return of the Living Dead, and these motherfuckers look just like mm, those zombies, mm-hmm. almost to a T. So I don't know if these are the same ones, but they probably had the same effects team on that film. I'm almost certain of okay. it. I'd almost put money on it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> All right, so anyway, those are the two films I was referring to earlier, alluding to. Anyway, what I like now is because of Dr. Bukowski, right? He's He's been tired. He's been drained. He needs time because what they want to do at a certain point, too, is they bring in Colonel um, Carlson. This is kind of Toby Hooper because they were like, well, we found the space pod that went missing. Guess where it's at? He crashes in Texas? Fucking Texas. Like, (laughs) of course it would be Texas. Come on, Toby. Right? But this is where I say it sets things in motion because he gives some of these people that they've brought in now, like that includes the doctors, that includes Colonel Kane, which he's like an Air Force dude, Mm -hmm. whatever, Colonel. SAS, yeah, yeah, Special yeah. Air Services. So they bring him in, and then they bring in Carlson, right? Now because he's he's had time to recover, and they need some background of what's really going on because he had firsthand contact. And so he goes into this spiel. And I like what the other colonel, he talks about, uh, Kane, sorry, Colonel oh, yeah, Kane. Yeah. He's like, tell it to us like we're stupid or tell it to us like we're dumb. That's <laughs> like, that, that's perfect. Yeah. Tis like we don't have a fucking clue. Right? And so he does. He go, of course, he withholds details, but he tells what, what happened, his encounter, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and this, my first time through was where it clicked to me 100% oh, that this is Dracula. Because I'm like, oh, this is Jonathan Harker when he gets back and he's explaining to him what happened. Yeah. But then I, mean, I had to sit there and I had to think about it because none of the roles are exact. I mean, they're exaggerations. Carlson... Of- is both Jonathan Harker and Mina. Exactly. Where Dr. Falada is pretty obvious who he is. Well, Falada is kind extent. of Van Helsing. To an extent. He, in my opinion, I, uh, he's kind of Van Helsing. He's kind of Arthur Holmwood. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at that. Because he's not really a hunter. Right. Well, kind and of in, the novel, really. in the novel, Van Helsing's not a hunter, though. Right, he's right. just implied to be a doctor that is heard about vampires before he even he has to fuck off yeah. and like do some exactly research. he's like he has the he has some background knowledge but so falada is like that part of makes van sense. helsing makes sense whereas kane is like the A popular hybrid. van helsing yeah. but is honestly more quincy than anything i would say that's a good point since everyone forgets about fucking quincy <laughs> damn it equal representation that's what we need yeah i did Nobody forget that fucking a Texan helped chop off that's Dracula's pretty, head. That's at pretty, the end of the fucking yeah, that's book. pretty remarkable because that is a character that totally forgets. Like, oh yeah, that we've got there. It was yeah, at least group. half the adaptations. Yeah, don't include Quincy at all. They just so throw in Arthur and Jonathan. Yeah, that's um, that is fucked up. But anywho, anywho, 
And then I was trying to think about it. I think Bukowski is Lucy. Yeah, you could say he is Lucy. Yeah, he got a little bit drained. Not all the way drained. But what I was going to get... And I think you could also argue that Carlson might be a touch Renfield as well. Yeah. But also, peace do. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Peace do. That's pretty fucking obvious. The whole setting and everything else is pretty Mm -hmm. obvious. Yeah. This is kind of what it's leading me into. Once Steve Rell is back, gives all his expo, what, what happened on board... They like, all right, you're dismissed. You can get some rest. And while he's resting, he has a dream, a psychic connection, once again with the the vampire. And after his nightmare and after he wakes up, it's intimated that they would like to do a hypnosis on him. But they're going to wait until the morning. You know, he's a little too fragile right now. So they do. They put him under. He starts revealing more information. And this time he has a psychic connection because... The female has jumped into another body, mind-wise, mm-hmm. into this woman who is this, you know, attractive, redhead. She's in a park. There's a guy by his Volvo doing whatever. And so he's, like, leading them along. He gives them the license plate number of this guy. He gives them the name of the woman. It's, like, Ellen or something like that. The name of the guy. He tells them what's happened in the car. She's seducing him, et cetera. She needs some, some energy. Mm-hmm. And in the mix of all that... After she fucks off and after they confirm the story, she made a trip at this hospital. It's like Thurlston Hospital or something like that that's home to, like, mental patients. And so they were like, all right, we're going to interview this lady. We, we know who she is now, right? So that sends Kane and Carlson out. They interview her. Carlson really interviews her, if you will. Get some information from her and finds that out. That part's fucked up, right? Yo, yeah. Because of what Kane says, too. He's like, I'm just a voyeur. <laughs> like, oh, shit. Yeah, well, because I, okay. <laughs> oh, shit. Man, if you're just listening to this and you haven't watched the movie, <laughs> he's like half choking her out, has her pressed on the fucking dresser. Well, she's a masochist. And he's like, she's a fucking masochist. She wants me to hurt her. Just give me the information. And he's like, I'm going to make her tell me. I don't care you what you think. Like it. Yeah. yeah, you can get leave the room if you'd like. And he's just like, oh, no, I'm a natural voyeur. And just sits <laughs> down and fucking, like, crosses his legs. And I'm like, bro, what the fuck? <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, at least he's honest. He's up front about it. He's like, you got to do do whatever you got to do. I'm just here to watch. All right. So, yeah, they get some information. They find out, we've already alluded to, that she visited that hospital earlier. And so it jumped once again. And it's believed into a inmate. A, a, an inmate, yeah. As I was trying to say, a, a male this time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so they make that visit, and they come in contact with Doctor Armstrong, who's played by Patrick Stewart. He tells him that the inmate has the mind of a four-year-old, even though he's like this big brute, you know. And they're gonna put him underneath hypnosis, and this is where it really gets interesting. This is like to me, this is arguably my favorite part of the film. Also, uh, to note. Patrick Stewart did this role for the money, dude. He no. had to he had to uh, repair some bay windows in his house. You know what's also interesting? Around the same time, we already talked about that he was in Dune, which came out in mm-hmm. '84. Then he turns around and does this in '85. You're like, man, he was really into some sci-fi shit, <laughs> you know, before he even probably realized he was going to get these roles later down the road. But good on him, nonetheless. He also says that. He loved working with Toby Hooper. He said mm. it was his favorite director to work with. He just doesn't like this movie. Oh, I mean. Yeah. I get it. 
Also, uh, Space Vampire's author does not like this oh, movie. Oh, yeah. I've, I've seen what he said about it because there was some other film that was adapted earlier than this film. That The guy who wrote that was like, man, this film version of my book is probably the worst film ever. And he's like, well, have you seen that? <laughs> have you seen the film adaptation of my book? Yeah. Yeah, you might. Oh, well, you know. Anyway, what I like about this is some of the, the things that happen, what transpires is now they've agreed this is Dark Art, Armstrong, piece two. He's like, all right, we're going to agree to let you put this patient, this inmate, under hypnosis, right, with the premise of what you've told me. But something happens, something transpires, which is interesting because Carlson and Kane, like, step aside for a second, have a little dialogue, and then they go back in. They're like, all right, because they're going to, you know, inject the guy with whatever serum. And instead they inject peace dude because he's like, dude, he touched me earlier. I know that she's in him. Dude, this that shit completely surprised me. Because if you do watch it, he does put his hand on his shoulder mm-hmm. When they're first being introduced to each other. I didn't pay attention to that shit, though. I did the second time around because he mentions yeah. it. And I was like, wow, I don't remember that. But that first time around, I was like, oh, shit, what? They're getting Patrick Stewart. Yeah, I was like, oh, oh what? <laughs> because this is where it gets really interesting, right? They put his ass under. And he starts revealing shit because, the, you know, Matilda mm-hmm. May, her character, is inside of Peace Stew's head. And Steve Rail's back, and he are having that back and forth because he's seeing her through him, and he's talking to her through him. But Pistu is talking through himself as her. <laughs> and it starts to get a little too sexy. Guess what other scenes cut up different? Probably that. The kiss. I hope um, they left that in. <laughs> I don't think you see him kiss him. Wow. I was like, Pistu is giving him the eyes right now if you're paying attention. Instead of it having that sort of long shot, it's not that long of a shot. It's like three seconds, but of it like framed down by Pistu's cheek, looking up at him as he's like trying to keep himself from coming down. It goes for the up top and shows it as her as he's coming down. Oh, okay. So they didn't want to go that other route with it. From what I understand, once again, I haven't actually watched it. I was just reading about the cuts on a website, but... From the way I read it, is it sounds like instead of flipping back and forth so much, they just show her like 90% of the time. Right. So it's just, they don't even use Peace Do for that. Yeah. They give you that illusion, I suppose. And there's a lot more of it done from that high angle looking down at the back okay. of his fucking head. Like more right so than at her like face. from the side of mm-hmm. that boob. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> I think they still flip back and forth a little bit, but... Dude, some craziness ensues because of all this shit that transpires. Right. right. Like, Peace too. Like, what the fuck is going on right now? This film went bonkers for me, and I kind of, I was in it to win it. I was in for the ride at that point. It's like, I'm already like an hour into this film. This shit's getting all kind of crazy like it. Because <laughs> he gives up the information, and then... Man, from that point... I mean, I kind of skipped a lot uh, forward in my note-taking, but mm. essentially what I get from this is after you learn that is this shit's spreading. Like, where what happened to her, right? They're like, what happened to her body even though she's able to, like, leap back and forth? What, oh, yeah, doesn't he, like, shrivel, die, whatever? They have this weird thing in the helicopter where they have to go because things are getting fucking out of hand in London. Like, the outbreaks yeah. happened, right? Because those other guys are out. 
and, and they're, they're starting they're gonna, to spread. Yeah, and so they're going to take him with her in him, right? And then shit goes wild. It goes bonkers inside the helicopter because it's like weird. Blood I don't thing remember happens. why. Do you remember why? I can't remember. I honestly can't remember why. I lost some of the dialogue. I was kind of zoning out. But regardless, like there's a blood effigy of her that comes out of Peace Stew and some other dude, isn't it? Yeah, they get like blood drained. It was weird. Like, I, I was psychically in, I was blood like, drained, I liked it. and she just like becomes a blood version I of just herself. Cools out. It looked cool as shit. No, That's it was. All I, yeah, it was. The dope. visual effects for this time period were way ahead of his fucking time. It was dope. I just had no fucking idea what was going on. Me either. All I, all I really got out of that was they were supposed to be going to this other place to get quarantined, even though they were like, "No, take us here." Like we're gonna get shot the fuck out of the sky if you ain't listen to me right now. So they do. They meet up with those dudes, right? Uh, it's like some little military force quarantining, but they're like, "Look." This is what's going on. This is the information. We know we're a part of this whole fucking thing that's going on. We got to get out, right? So mm-hmm. this is essentially what they're doing. Kane and Carlson, that is. All my notes really get at this point is like, it's pretty simple to follow. It's, you know, there's a virus that's spreading. It's turning these guys, or the, the citizens of London into ghouls, right? Well, they think it's a, I mean, is it technically a virus? They think it's a virus. We know it's. Well, we know it's not. It's, it's just, ghoul vampirism. Right, right. It's yeah. just. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 spreading if you mm-hmm. want to call it that, but it exactly is it hooliganism is that what they call it? <laughs> <laughs> Hooligool. <laughs> anyway, yeah, the whole city of London is just running rife with ghouls. And were you getting like Helsing vibes, dude? Yes, the fuck I was. Yes, I was because I was like, man, this is a bit like Helsing right now. I wonder if that was inspired by yeah, this. Right? Like, I kind of wonder if, uh, what's Coda here now? I believe is the, it, the author's name. It wouldn't name. surprise me, though, because you we've got to consider, too, like, for London's He's history. He's a big fucking nerd. That London <laughs> bombing and fire that mm-hmm. ensued, like, that's a big part of their history, you know, modern history. So, yeah, it's going to be in the sphere of things, so to speak, with these people. Makes sense. But, yeah, it really gave me those vibes, minus all the baby eating and shit. Spoiler. Right. Spoiler. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, do that on mushrooms. Um, so what what we're doing here now is there's a couple of different things happening. Falada does get infected, even though we don't see it. Mm-hmm. Right now, they're trying to contact the prime minister to try to see what's going on with him. Dude, well, I love what, how all of that shit plays there's out. There's a lot of way. cool like, stuff happening. When they meet back up with Falada... And, like, you kind of know what happened because, you know, if you were paying attention earlier in the movie, you know that that infected guy went into the area. With oh, Flata. without a doubt. He had that. And then it cuts smirk. away. Yeah. And then the fact that we still see Flotta around, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then know. you get to the end of that scene and you're like, oh, yeah, yep. there he goes. Yeah. And it confirms it. That was, I thought, just extremely well done. Yeah. He comes across because you already mentioned this, too. He had some background knowledge about... This sounds a little bit like vampires from lore, mm-hmm. right? We learn because I think he has an encounter with Colonel Kane where he's like, "Yeah, I found how to kill this van, how to kill him." I use this like ancient weapon out of this iron. It's implied, basically, it's implied that these space vampires are the reason why we have vampire legends, and that this was something that was used to kill them one of the other times they showed up. Leaded iron is what it was, but mm-hmm. yeah, he's like the energy source isn't like in the heart; it's a little bit below 
and that's where you stab them, or mm-hmm. that's where you end them. Hello, that's a little, you know, foreshadowing here. <laughs> so we learn all that little expo there. That's how Cain winds up killing. That's cut up too. You know how it's like two sentences. It's down to just the one in the cut, <laughs> wow. where with like the important part, like yeah, like I said, they tried to get rid of. Every wow. instance of fucking Any them vampirism. saying vampire they could. Any allusion to it. Which makes it even weirder when he then has to explicitly say vampire in that sentence. Yeah, we're like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, okay, um, that's weird. But yeah, I mean, you're getting some of this expo. And like, the, if you're following anything like Dracula, it's like, okay, it makes pretty much sense. So they're trying to find her. They discover like her body's been in this cathedral the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to be with its, is it like with the earth? So the coffin, huh? hello. So she's holed up inside the cathedral the whole time though. The spacecraft has entered in the, the earth's atmosphere or not atmosphere, but you know, and within its realm. Well, at this point, Steve is like full on Mina. Yeah. And he's like, I know where she's at. Yeah. And yeah. Like the whole psychic thing. For and him. they're going through London and it's kind of just like, it's not exactly the same, but it might as well be the gunfight against the gypsies. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And like so. the chase scene at the end of Dracula. Basically. I guess there's a chase scene at the end of Dracula. I really do like that, though. Yeah, the whole <laughs> carriage and stuff. Yeah, that's pretty boss. But it might as well have been that, right? Mm-hmm. You're right. So let's see here. Um, Carlson knows because of the source, like the energy source, the flow of it, right? Because it's happening all throughout the city, but it's being focused on this one particular place. Huh? Hello. It's so loose. Yes, all the souls leaving. So Kane, he winds up going back. I think that he winds up going back to Flawed, and that's where he runs into that dude. Kane, straight badass. I like Kane a lot. Whole fucking flick. Takes control every situation he's in, just goes through London fucking willy-nilly while there's a fucking vampire plague. What is happening right now? That's crazy. But yeah, he's like, fuck it, I got to do what I got (laughs) to do. And then he finds the other vampire, Mm -hmm. and... You know, he's got all this energy flowing because they, they find out, like, it can't be just her in terms of, like, the exchange of souls and all this energy. They have to, like, use They're her as a vessel. They're them yeah. and sending them to her, and she's yeah, the she's conduit. It. Exactly. That's why you see it focused on her, even though it's flowing throughout the city, which makes it. I guess it makes film sense. And the energy form is like the real forms, I guess, apparently. I suppose, yeah. They I, I did read a little bit about the novel, and I think it's eventually revealed in the novel that the energy form is their true form. First they appear as humans, then you see yeah. them as the bats that this that the movie says is their real form. Well, and then you... Yeah. The bats is implied to be their real form, but you see them as energy forms as well. yeah. Right? Like, am you're I right. getting that right? No, you're right. Whereas in the book, it's like, they did human, then they went bat, but then that was kind of a joke. <laughs> and actually, it's kind of squid, but kind of not. I did, I did see, read that a little bit, like the squid form. Like, they have kind of a squid form, mm. and then if they, like, embrace their true potential or whatever, I, they can become, like, the energy form. Or, I could see where maybe... Where they're like, yeah, that's Lovecraftian in that sense. Well, I think part of the Lovecraftian bit is that the dude in the book ends up learning how to do enter like a more peaceful energy transfer and is effectively immortal, but he still is having to feed off people in a right, way. Right, right. I mean, it is toying with 
the cosmic horror aspect mm-hmm. of it. Like, yeah, this is this has been happening for a long time. He's just now realizing it. And now he's kind of stuck as being this new, like, being on the verge of immortality. And yeah. what does that mean? Like, yeah, that's interesting. It's mm-hmm. almost prophetic in a way. But in the midst of all this exchange, Kane offs the second vampire, which you've already kind of mentioned. It, it reveals itself as a space bat, like that mm-hmm. human-sized one, and it, it, you know, dies or whatever. That looked fine. Like, the yeah. effects looked good. The design was... Yeah, whatever. Kane winds up getting the ancient weapon from Falada because Falada winds up getting shot. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, watch this. <laughs> yeah, and so now Kane's like, all right, now I got to get back with Carlson because I got some secret knowledge now with my shits. And so, yeah, he makes it inside the cathedral. That's where Carlson and Matilda. Making out. Making out, all booby, sexy stuff. You know, they're in like this energy exchange portal thing. But then uh, Kane's like, you know, I got the power of the universe with this right here in my hands. He does the whole He-Man shit throws that sword or whatever, that makeshift weapon to Carlson. And Carlson's like, he realizes, yeah, I've got to end this. And so he, he pretty much impels himself in Matilda. And that sends their energy, I guess, back into the ship. And then the ship heads back to the comet. And the whole time, Kane's watching it. And that's pretty much that. Look, that this ending is why this movie is never going to be a true classic and only a cult classic because it makes no goddamn sense. I was like, you know, I guess if you're wanting to play they off, they should have died, but they cosmic, didn't die. Yeah. They got sent to the ship. Well, she, so the ship gets away and they're going to come back. She gives some of that expo at the end that talks about the energy. Like this is not really their true form or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like somehow I got lost in it. But what I'm going to surmise it as is like. It's like a, a part of a higher energy form. They're just being brought back to it. Mm. So, yeah, regardless if they're dying in this this form, it's being sent back up regardless. It's implied. She she tries to convince to him, and it's pl- implied with one of his lines at the beginning of the movie <laughs> that he has been one of them the entire time. Right, right, right. She's just coming back to let, or they're coming back to use him as a way of doing what they need to do. Well, basically, they're using, they're gathering him to extract intelligence from them. So the next time they come back, they're attuned to humans so that they can wipe us out. Yeah. Whoops. But also theoretically, because they're going to be back in 76 years and everyone is going to remember the entire South of London being massacred. We're probably just going to nuke the fuck out of them the second they appear back into our solar system. See ya. (laughs) Nope, not this time. Fool me once. And I mean, I think a nuke would work on them. Who's They're not say? implied to know, be so right? powerful that a nuke wouldn't work. I don't know, yeah. Not if they were able to take out the homeboys with the fucking... Yeah, exactly. exactly. The sword thing. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's something to be said there. But regardless, regardless, like, after watching it the first time through, I was like, especially, like, halfway through it, I already knew, I was like, dude, this movie is for the boys. <laughs> this, is, this is 100% a boys movie. You know, or... If you really, really like, you know, just the female body, this is a great film for that, too. Honestly, I do really like what they did with Dracula in this movie. I thought it was interesting because once I did realize what they were doing with, you know, that story and these characters, I was like, yeah, this is this is not bad. It's actually pretty decent. It's it's a lot easier than, like, what the fuck are you talking about with this life force and these weird aliens and why are they vampires? Yeah, no, it... It makes sense if you follow this film's logic. And it's not bad. 
It's not really bad. not. I don't think it's as bad as they made it out to be. But once again, you know, we've got to kind of in a weird way, got to consider like, all right, it was the 80s, the slew of films that were coming out. You know, people were so fucking conservative, man, when it came to stuff like this. If it even toyed with any idea of violence or nudity or anything, it, was, it might as well have been the work of the devil, essentially, because you're still coming off the backbone of all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. So I can see why this was kind of panned in a way. And like once again, we said it wasn't. It's not a great film, but it's definitely not the worst film you're ever going to see. No, no, not even close. Once again, though, the theatrical cut. Yeah, that's a good Dude, point. Dude, you, that's have, to, you have to read through that list point. of differences. That is a very solid point. That's another critical thing we have to take into consideration. So they didn't get we're to looking, see that cut. We're looking at that box office bomb. Box office means theater. Precisely. And that, I think that speaks, no puns, but that does speak volumes of how it was probably, you know, perceived and received. You know, it's like, oh, what the fuck? Because if you're if you're cutting all mentions of vampires and everything else, man, this is a completely different film. But there's like two mentions of vampires you can't get rid of. Ah, that is shoo, too many cooks. That's what happens, man. I I was literally just talking to somebody this week about that, and it's not something that it's like a conversation that doesn't get brought up. But if you're gonna, you know, review things or or try to be analytical or critical of things. This is part of the formula you got to take in consideration. Otherwise, you're missing out, mm-hmm. like on on why this is happening or how it came to be. It's like, man, those cuts make a big difference. A little bit of trivia, from what I understand, is that device they're talking about in the beginning, the Nerva, Nerva device, yeah. was real. Well, so, was real. It was never made. It was, it was it like anti gravity something? Yeah, it was like um, not anti gravity, but like, the. But the opposite, like artificial gravity. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, it was conceived of maybe, pro- probably not prototypes. I don't think it ever got to that stage. But Still. it basically, it would have worked. It was something that they were at one point planning on putting into production and never got there as some of the different nuclear treaties started getting underway. And we moved away from the idea of using nuclear propulsion in space, mm. which is it was based around. Huh. Would have been interesting. Now, here is something else, too. We've already talked about the fact that this was a part of a three-picture deal with Canon. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for that, right, if it wasn't for this film, because this was the first film that came out of that three-picture deal, the second one being The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. So we wouldn't have gotten that beauty out of the deal. right? Now, interestingly enough, we have reviewed all three of that three-picture deal. That's fun. Because <laughs> the other one was Invaders from Mars. So, yeah, it was a, it kind of a nice, interesting way and coincidental way of wrapping up a three-picture deal with Hooper. So I'm glad we finally got to talk about it. I know it's one we've talked about quite a bit in terms of just reference, you know, and passing and sometimes on the show. But, yeah, it was fun. Not a bad one. Second time through, it was a bit of a plod. But for note-taking sake, it was not bad. <laughs> it was pretty nice. Now, there's a giant list of people who were supposedly almost in this movie or that were being considered. Honestly, looking through the list and knowing the fact that this movie ended up going over budget and they couldn't film some scenes that they wanted to be in here anyway, I don't know how realistic some of them would have been. But what I did find interesting was that there was a number of people in this movie that were considered for different roles in the movie. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about this too. So Patrick Stewart, before being cast as Dr. Armstrong, was considered for Dr. Bukowski, Sir Heseltine, 
Colonel Kane, Kelly, and Lamson. Okay. Frank Finley, before being cast as Falada, was considered for Dr. Armstrong, Dr. Bukowski, and Sir Percy. Okay. He would have fit. I mean, they're all doctors. Michael Gothard was considered for Colonel Kane before being cast as Bukowski. Mm -hmm. Peter Firth was Mm. considered for uh, Deerbridge. Just to backtrack just for a second. Gothard, if I'm not mistaken, it was believed because... He felt like his role was demoted mm. from Kane to the part that he got, that it put him into like this very depressive funk, which they believe led to his suicide later on oh, down the Jesus. road. Yeah, so I hope that's not the case, but it's believed that that, that this role was maybe what spurred that. Whew. Nicholas Ball, before being cast as Deerbridge, was considered for Kane, Kelly, and Lamson. And Hallam, who was Lampson, was considered for Bukowski, Deerbridge, Kane, and Kelly. Yeah, I think he was perfect as Lampson. Because I am not going to go through the giant list no, of all the people um, that were fucking technically considered. No, you, people can look this up on the database, but it says Olivia Hussey. Now, we've talked about mm-hmm. her because of Black Christmas. But it said that she left the movie because she mistakenly thought that she was going to play the role of Space Girl. Oh, shit. But she was... Replaced by Nancy Paul, which I believe is the other female astronaut on board. Mm. Right? Because there's, honestly, there's not very many female characters in this film at all. Lots of them say this movie's for the dudes. <laughs> well, presumably, the other couple females on the crew would have been the ones that they plucked the males from the minds of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I get it. <laughs> but, yeah, most of casting was done in London. Right. Makes perfect sense. And I just in my limited research read the reason why Matilda May got the part is because a lot of the British uh, actresses who were being, you know, cast for the role of space girl didn't want to do full frontal nudity. Mm. They had a hard time doing it. But Matilda May was comfortable. And, you know, for obvious reasons, she was picked for the part and she was like extremely young, too. She, like, she was just like 18 at the time. You know, and um, it's said, too, like, during some of the early filming of this film, a lot of the crew, like, carpenters and electricians would watch scenes, <laughs> you know, like, suspiciously show up to watch scenes. So a lot of the scenes after they started catching on, like, they filmed them in private sets and stuff like that. So it's also said about the, the female va- or the male vampires. We've talked about the nudity and stuff is they purposely put a lot of things in the way of their dongs mm-hmm. so it wouldn't get caught on screen, mainly because of the MPAA. I'm pretty sure you can see a little bit of ball sack in one scene. Though. I'm almost certain you probably can see some mushroom too, but not that I was looking for it, but like, whoop, there it is. <laughs> I, my TV's just too good now. <laughs> uh, dude, you have a boss TV. You know? like, modern technology is becoming a little too uh, detailed. <laughs> Yeah, man, I'm pretty sure I saw some taint. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anywho, aside from that, there's a lot of trivia on this film. Some early, we've already talked about it, like visual effects that were a little bit ahead of its time. And because of that, too, there was some problems with production. Mm. You know, there's a lot of stuff that got kind of derailed, and it put things, like I said, back. We've already talked about studio interference, like the cuts and all that. Man, Aside from that, though, still not a bad film. No. Um, I can't only speak for the international cut, though. 
That's yeah. all I can speak for. Just because I've brought it up so many times, I will say I found uh, that list of the differences on movie-censorship.com. Nice. Hell yeah. Where it says there is 102 differences between the versions, uh, including 21 instances of alternate footage. They do use a couple just literal different reaction takes. Wow. Like when they like <laughs> react to Patrick Stewart uh, yelling, they use a different take. That's wild. And five recuts, including the reordering of one of the, the vampires on the, the London street scenes. Huh. It's moved 20 minutes earlier in the movie. Wow. <laughs> uh, for a difference of 14 minutes, 21 seconds. That's still a lot of film. A lot. You figure that's almost 15 pages of script. That's a lot. If you, if, I mean, if we're doing it by that. But anyhow, yeah, yeah. I still think it's worth checking out if you're a fan of Toby Hooper, if you're a fan of, like, sci-fi, vampire stuff, crossover stuff. Still not bad. 80s film. 85, right? So, yeah. yeah. Score is good. Editing's good. Cinematography's good. Acting's good. I mean, honestly, like, there's... On the technical side of this film, there's really nothing bad that sticks out that I can think of for the international cut. Right. <laughs> Yeah, not that I can think I, don't, I can't stress that enough. <laughs> but yeah, outside of that, man, that's pretty much, I think, all I have to say about that. Uh, yeah, I can't really think of too much else either. I just, since I've brought it up so many times, I highly recommend people going and checking out the differences. Or, like, if you watched the American cut, watch yeah. the international cut because it's a better movie. <laughs> and you're like, holy moly. Although, also, if you want to watch the So Bad It's Good version, yeah. watch the theatrical cut. Yeah, revert back. Go caveman. <laughs> VHS. We have have next week planned. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Yes, we do. I'm excited. Uh, Return to Masters of Horror. Another return to Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Can't get enough. And a setup for We're Coming Up on 250. Yeah, that's going to be so much fun. And I'm going to tease it now. It's a setup for what's coming on 250. Yeah, so if you're paying attention, follow what we're doing thematically. So next week will be... Stuart Gordon's H.P. Lovecraft's <laughs> Dreams in the Witch House Hell from yeah. Masters of Horror. Real Lovecraft this time. <laughs> I'm excited, partially just because I'm going to reread Dreams in the Witch House. And yeah, it's, it's not a very long years. read, but no. yeah, it's, it's a good one. It's going to be a reintroduction to some people we haven't talked to, or about, I should say, mm-hmm. in a while, so that'll be fun as well. And we get to scratch another one of the Masters of Horror episodes. Yeah, I'm always up for that. I love that series. So I'm super excited. I'm super excited for the next week as well. We've uh, we've come a long way, everybody. Thank you. And absolutely for this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried squirms out. Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, We highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, 
or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Uh, scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, the easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. Uh, you can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. I'm not going to give you all those ads. So with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time. Peace.